I thought I would spend the next few weeks reading to you a book by my friend and author Michael Phillips. God, a Good Father. Deep within every human heart lies a created hunger for the heavenly mountains of God's presence. The lungs of our soul ache to breathe the air of eternity. We thirst for waters that stream forth from divine springs. A divine restlessness exists within the innermost chambers of our soul, stirring us to seek an intimate knowing of God as our Father. Jesus said that his deepest desire was that we might know his Father as he did. He was born to show us the Father, and died that we might come to know him personally. Jesus seeks to introduce us to a life lived with the Father, a life of ongoing, moment-by-moment intimacy on all levels of humanness, mind, heart, soul, and will. I hope you will enjoy listening to this book for the next several weeks. God, A Good Father by Michael Phillips This is and has been the Father's work from the beginning to bring us into the home of his heart. George MacDonald Introduction I would like to invite you on a journey, an inner quest out of the valleys and low places of our spiritual abodes to the high mountains. It is usually more comfortable to remain lower down the slopes, where crowds of the like-minded congregate. The doctrines and traditions there are familiar and unthreatening. It takes little courage to go through the same motions and discuss the same principles of seeming spirituality, week after week, year after year. But there's not much challenge, not much to be seen from the valleys and foothills. A rote religion offers endless repetition, but little vibrancy. And if one is content thus with the ruts and routines of valley life, he or she will not find this pilgrimage of much interest. But for you men and women who desire something more, I invite you to join an adventure that will lead to wider vistas and broader outlooks than are possible from the lowlands. As we journey together, we will probe into areas and be challenged to reflect on some things that the Elders and theologians of the low cities don't like their inhabitants thinking about. But bold, prayerfully imaginative faith is necessary if a Christian life is to remain fresh and progress toward intimacy with God. It takes honest, vigorous thought to get above the fogs that cover much of these lower regions with traditional but unsatisfying explanations of God and His ways. I say this so that you will know what kind of book this is. 
if you are looking for a concise list of X number of things you can go out and do tomorrow to achieve intimacy with God, you have picked up the wrong book. This is no how-to manual. No 12 steps to this and 10 steps to that and four easy methods toward that. As I made clear several years ago in the volume entitled A God to Call Father, of which this is a new, revised, and updated edition. This is a book about ideas. I'm going to challenge you instead to think differently about God and how you relate yourself to Him. Clearly, it is impossible to know God, to obey Him, to function within His family, or to understand His Word if we are thinking incorrectly about who he himself is. Practicality is a worthwhile and necessary priority. However, it is only half the life equation. Here we will attempt to construct a foundation, a way of viewing God upon which the practicalities of life can be built. We will be orienting our beliefs and attitudes in some new directions concerning just exactly who God is. Much of our thinking about Him is rooted in teachings, traditions, and principles we have been taught, and impressions we have gleaned from others, rather than from having prayed our way through certain important scriptural concepts for ourselves. Our knowing of God, therefore, is sketchy, hazy, and incomplete. This is what we will do here together. Learn to think in fresh, invigorating, and liberating new ways about He whom Jesus called our Father. There will certainly be a do involved the very important exercise of learning to relate ourselves to the Father in the exciting ways in which Jesus walked with him and invited us to do likewise. But it will be a do measured not with hands, fingers, and feet, but rather with brains and hearts. We must learn to think rightly about God. Until that foundation has been laid, Nothing else will make much sense. Now, I hope you may come to view this as one of the most practical books you ever read, but not because you were given a list of points to memorize or because you took notes or underlined various clever passages, but rather because the ideas we explore prompt you to go outside alone and gaze upward toward the mountaintops of your faith and say, O oh God, teach me to think rightly about you. Help me know you more intimately as my very personal Father. Michael Phillips, Eureka, California Chapter 1 The Instinct to Look Up Deep within every mortal heart lies a created hunger for the heavenly mountains of God's presence. All of us, from our infancy 
have silently wondered what lies on the slopes above the mists, hidden from view, up where God dwells. The animal kingdom comes into existence looking abroad upon the land. Those of the species known as mankind, however, enter life with their gaze directed upward. Lower forms of life are born with physical instincts. Their impulses operate horizontally, telling them intuitively how to relate to the world around them, to others of their genus, and to different species. Theirs is an instinct toward procreation and survival, toward horizontal relationship and existence. Man, however, created in the image of God, possesses instincts of an altogether different nature. Within us, the Creator has implemented spiritual instincts, tending far beyond mere physical survival. Impulses akin to animal instincts constantly surface within us and are certainly intrinsic to our makeup, but they remain secondary to the deepest nature of human personhood. Man's instinct is vertical, a yearning after the high, the lasting, the eternal. It is an instinct after growth, after betterment, after significance, after something and someone above us. When in touch with the truest regions of our humanness, we seek the sky, not the earth. The lungs of our soul ache to breathe the air of eternity. And though mists obscure our sight, our deepest perceptions tell us there is more to existence than that which our physical eyes see around us. Something affirms to our innermost being that there are higher regions where we might live, where the air is cleaner, where vision is keener, where the senses come more fully alive. A divine restlessness exists within the innermost chambers of our soul, stirring us with longings we cannot identify, which we futilely attempt to satisfy with bread that is not food, made from husks that are not grain. The mountains beckon us who live in the valley. Our deepest selves are out of step with the modern life, pushing and shoving us on every side. You have caught yourself, as have I, glancing upward, though you may not even know what it is your heart seeks. Before the valley philosophers and theologians created the mists with their self-contradictory babblings, there were voices among us calling us to heed that instinctive longing. Augustine, that ancient and venerable saint, maintained that the heart of man is restless until it finds its rest in him. Thomas Kelly, that recent and venerable saint, called it the light within. Blaise Pascal, 
that 17th century defender of the faith, defined it as a God-shaped vacuum, an infinite abyss, which can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, God himself. Hannah Hernard, that pioneer of mountain byways, wrote of life on the high places. And George MacDonald, that 19th century spiritual sage who saw high beyond the mists, said, This is and has been the Father's work from the beginning, to bring us into the home of his heart. That is our destiny. Why then do so few discover the shape of that vacuum in their souls, the illumination of that light residing within? Why do so many of us resist the challenge to climb to the mountaintops? Why is the home of God's heart so remote from where we live out our days? Why do we go to our graves with that destiny, that high calling, unfulfilled? Why is the human species so at odds with this inborn instinct of his nature? Allow me to offer three reasons. One, unlike the animals, man has been given choice. We share instinct with the animal kingdom, but ours has this difference. We may ignore it. Animals can be no other than they are. Their instinct defines their essence. Not so man. Man may or may not follow his instincts, for he has been provided an internal on-off switch that regulates the very centers of his being, the mind, where intellect develops, the heart, where emotions blossom, and the soul, where spiritual sensitivities ripen. This switch, which controls each of the above, is located in that most decisive of regions, the will. The switch is called choice. The degree to which man chooses to follow his inborn, God-hungry instinct will determine the extent to which his mind, heart, and soul reach their fullness of maturity and potential, and whether they operate with unity and harmony inside him. 2. Many factors of modern society work strenuously to dull the inner voice that speaks of the light, calling us toward that true and only destination, where our mind, heart, soul, and will can find rest, peace, and totality of being. Contemporary society and our practical peers of modernism Tell us, there is nothing out there. We may gaze upward all we want, they say, but we will find nothing but blue emptiness. There are no heavenly peaks surrounding this valley where man must dwell. Indeed, they say we must look within if we would discover the significance we seek. Man himself is the emphatic, and only center of the universe. 3. 
sin, as intrinsic to the human disposition as the intuitive upward bent of our inner sight, declares, as it has since the days of the garden, that there is no one to whom we must look up, no one to whom we owe allegiance. This lie from sin's smooth lips grates contrary to our deepest intuition. Deep down, we know differently. Yet it is a lie our lower nature eagerly receives. You, and no one else, says the enemy, are the sole master of your fate. No one has the right to exact obedience from you. You have no need of any other. There exists no injunction to bow before a God, a Creator, a Lord. The lie is independence. It comes from the lowest bowels of the earth, not the highest realms of the heavenly mountains. Instinct calls upward. The lie forces our gaze downward. In believing it, we fight against our very self. Choice, modernism, and sin prevent us from apprehending our destiny and keep us from the destinations in mountaintop sanctuary wherein we were made to dwell.